The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Father, we do indeed thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, that these words of the Old Testament that we have just read were written for our instruction. And we remember that the Lord Jesus told us that he would send the Holy Spirit who would teach us all things. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would write these words upon our hearts. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us this day. And as we receive this word, I pray that it would work on us and shape us into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, or maybe you've been away for a few weeks, what you just heard was part of a history, and you've just sort of jumped in, you know, midstream. And you may be wondering what's going on. And simply put, we are in a time in David's life, later in his reign, when his son, Absalom, had risen up against him, tried to take the throne away from him, had driven him and some of his loyal men out of the city of Jerusalem. So he was in exile for a time. But then David was able to gather his men. They went to war against Absalom and his men, and Absalom's men were defeated. Absalom was killed. And last week, we considered the passage of that account, the death of Absalom. That's 2 Samuel 18. And the messengers who returned from the battlefield to deliver good news to David. And that phrase was repeated last week. Good news. They come with good news. And they declare, all is well. That was their message. All is well. Absalom has been defeated. All is shalom. All is peace. And that was true on that day. All was well. Absalom had been defeated. But as we read on, we just heard 2 Samuel chapter 19, as we read on into 2 Samuel chapter 20, we will soon discover that, in fact, all is not well. All is not well with David's kingdom. He has a lot of work to do just to restore the unity of the kingdom, the peace of the kingdom. There's been a lot of division, and those divisions and those rivalries remain. And in fact, the text that we just heard, it begins with this division and rivalry between Israel and Judah, and it ends with that division and rivalry. So all is not well for David and the kingdom. And he is very quickly having to make decisions and take actions to solidify, consolidate, bring people back together, make peace. And so we see some of that in this chapter. Some of his decisions are good decisions. They're wise. So he removes Joab as as general from his army. That's a good decision. Joab needs to be removed. We're going to find out next week. He's very quickly back in the center of things, but for a time he's removed. That's good. Wise decision. Some of his decisions are expedient. Not necessarily just, but they're expedient. 
So he says to Mephibosheth and Ziba, okay, just split the land. Some of his decisions are more a matter of policy. Uh, They're pragmatic. So Shimei, Shimei is not really to be trusted, but David says, listen, this is a day of clemency. This is a day of mercy. This is not a day of executions. We need to be bringing people together. This is a day for peace. So he spares the life of Shimei. So David is making decisions, but even at the end of the chapter, we know all is not well. There's division, there's rivalry. The men of Judah speak fiercer. Their words are fiercer than the men of Israel. And we'll, we'll come to the next chapter, next week, where we find there's another revolt, another rebellion. Now we know by now, it is clear to us by now, that the future of David's kingdom, the stability of David's kingdom, the future of the kingdom of God is not going to depend on David. It's not going to depend on his diplomacy, on his decisions, on his policies. If it depended solely on him, the kingdom would fail. And one thing we've, we've been paying attention to as we read through these chapters is what God is doing. God is the one who will sustain David's kingdom. He will preserve David. He will protect David. And we've been looking for the way in which God is at work, his hand of providence, his sovereign purposes unfolding. It's a reminder to us, too, that if, if the future of the church depends on us, our decisions, our policies, then we're doomed. We're doomed. But it doesn't. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Peter. I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is building his church right now. The beginning of August 2020, Christ is building his church. That's why we have a future. That's why we have hope. It doesn't depend on us. So we've seen this. God's sovereign purposes unfolding according to his decrees. He's faithful. He keeps his word. Even so, God is working out his purposes in history with particular people, with ordinary people, with people like you and me, in the very nitty-gritty of history. And we get a lot of the nitty-gritty of history in these chapters. And just wait for next week. That is, that is gritty. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. That is gritty. Even so, it is through the, it is through ordinary people, particular people that God is working out his purposes. And in this chapter that we've just heard, the narrator, the author of scripture has us focus on three individuals. It zooms in and it has us consider three people. Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. Barzillai. And we see their response to the return of David. David is coming back to his kingdom. He's being restored. We see each one of their responses. And we're meant to consider their responses. And as we do, we see there a picture of how we respond to Christ. How we respond to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. So first Shimei, and what Shimei does is he bargains with David. Yes, he repents, but he also tries to sweeten the deal. Look, I've got a thousand men. I'm the first of the house of Joseph. He tries to earn David's favor. And it's a warning to us. We cannot bargain with Christ. We cannot seek to sweeten the deal to earn his favor. And then we have Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a man who knows David's love. 
He knows, he's experienced, he's received David's loyal love. And Mephibosheth is a man who simply loves David. He doesn't try to make a bargain with David. He's not concerned about what David can do for him. So when David says, all right, we'll split the kingdom between you and Ziba, he says, take it all. I don't care. I only want you. I'm glad you're safe. He loves David. And so we see that's our response, too, to Christ. We don't serve him. We don't follow him because of what he can do for us. Hey, this is a good deal for me. We serve him because we know his love. He first loved us. And knowing his love, as we grow in our love for him, we only love him. We're concerned with his interests, not what he can do for us. And then finally, Barzillai. And here we see an old man at the end of his life. He has served well. He finishes well. But he recognizes, at my old age, I can't continue the way I did. But here, here's my servant, probably his son. And he said, let him go with you. And it's a picture of the older generation amongst, in the church, amongst God's people, serving well, finishing well, but also looking to the next generation and raising up the next generation, sending out the next generation to serve. So that's where we're headed. That's what we need to consider today. So first, Shimei. And Shimei bargains with David. Now let's remember who Shimei is. When Absalom took the throne and drove David out of the city, as David was going into exile, Shimei stood at the side of the road, cursing David, throwing stones at David. And remember at the time, David said, okay, let him do that. My life is in God's hands. And then when David is restored, Shimei very quickly, notice, he rushes to meet David. I got to get to David. I got to get to him quickly. Why? Because he knows his days are numbered. He knows what's coming or what should be coming to him. So for, to save his own neck, this, the, the only thing I can do is fall down on my face and plead for mercy. That's his only option at this point. And that's what he does. He rushes out to David. He falls down on his face. He, he acknowledges his sin, his guilt, and he pleads for mercy. It's a very public display, a very public show of his repentance. You know, everybody looking, saying, wow, Shimei, yeah, what a changed man. Look at this on his face, acknowledging his guilt, his sin, pleading for mercy. But notice that's not all he does. He brought a thousand men of Benjamin with him. He's not alone. And then he says this, Behold, I have come down this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Look at me, I'm the first. I'm the first. He's trying to bargain with David. He's trying to earn David's favor. He doesn't just simply repent and acknowledge his sin. And he says, now look at what I'm doing for you. Look at what I can do for you. He's negotiating. He's trying to make a deal. He wants a place in David's kingdom. And he thinks, I got something to offer. So he brings the thousand men. He says, look, I'm the first. Now there is a temptation for us in this. And some of you sitting here this morning may be Shimei. Yes, you've acknowledged the saving work of Christ. Yes, you have repented of your sins. But you don't come to him empty-handed. You've come to him and said, now look what I can do for you. Look what I've got for you. I've got, maybe I've got money, I've got influence, I've got these abilities, I've got these, these talents. And we still see our relationship with Christ somehow as this bargain, as this, this negotiation. 
Here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's what I can offer to you. Now, as you read through church history you'll, and you read biographies of people in church history, you'll find this is typical. People often begin the Christian life this way, bargaining with Christ, thinking, yes, I, I, I will earn your favor by offering this and doing that. And a pretty famous example of this is Martin Luther in the 16th century. Now, at the time, the late Middle Ages, the early modern period in European history, the church was corrupt. There, there were all kinds of things that would you, you would be shocked to hear the kinds of things that were going on. You just need to read the lives of some of the, the cardinals and the popes to get a sense of the state of the church at, a to, at that time. It needed to be reformed. And God raised up this man, Martin Luther, and others to bring the changes that needed to happen to reform the church. And Luther was a pastor. He was a theologian. But that wasn't his plan from the beginning. He didn't always plan to be a theologian or a pastor. His father was a miner. He owned a little mining company, did quite well for himself. And he wanted his son to make something of himself. And he said, go to law school. I'm going to put you, put you into law school. Go be a lawyer. So that's what Luther did. He wanted to be a lawyer. His dad pressured him into it. But then one day there was a terrible thunderstorm. You know, it would be great if there was some lightning right now as I'm telling this story, but... <laughs> And Luther was terrified. He thought for sure he was going to die. So he makes a bargain. He cries out to, to the Lord. He actually cried out to St. Anne, but he cries out and says, if I'm delivered from this storm, I will give my life to you. He was delivered, and he kept his end of the deal. So he became a monk. Not just a monk, an Augustinian monk. In other words, the most serious kind of monk you could be in the 16th century. He kept up his end of the bargain. He said, this is what I'll do if I'm delivered. He was delivered. He did it. He followed through. But what he soon soon discovered over time was that he couldn't actually keep up his end of the bargain. He was striving. He was doing everything he could to give his very best to Christ. And increasingly, he, he fell into this deep, this dark despair, this anxiety, this depression. Because increasingly, he recognized, it's not enough. My very best, I am striving every morning. I am doing everything I can to serve him. And it's not enough, because I know that he deserves better. I know that he deserves more. And so increasingly, he fell into this spiritual despair, this depression, And he thought, I can't offer him what he deserves. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve a place in his kingdom. And so he said, I'm forsaken. I am forsaken. And it was at that moment that he happened to be teaching through the book of Romans. At this point, he was a a professor in the university. He's teaching sacred scripture. He was teaching Romans and he was teaching the Psalms. And as, I was, as he was lecturing through the Psalms, he came to Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he heard those words, he remembered the words of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he meditated upon those words. 
And he meditated upon Christ on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he asked that question, why was he forsaken? Luther was, was thinking, I feel this. This is my cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he heard, he heard the Lord Jesus utter that same cry, and he asked himself, why? Why did Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he knew the answer because he was also teaching on Romans. For my sin. He died in my place. The condemnation that was on me went to him. The wrath of God that was poured out on me went to him. And Luther discovered, and kids, I know you're listening for this, he discovered as he was meditating on Psalm 22, as he was reading through Romans, he discovered the love of God. And he recognized what the love of God meant. So Romans, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, like Luther, we have nothing to give. We have nothing to offer. There is nothing that attracts the love of Christ to us. While we were sinners, just a few verses before that, Paul says, when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And the Apostle John says something similar. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. And this is what Luther was striving to do. To love God. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation to be the sin offering, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, this is what Luther discovered. He discovered this divine love, God's love. And he recognized it's not that I love him. It's not me trying to strive and giving him what I can. It's his love. It's entirely his love for me. And he began to preach that love, the love of God. He began to preach it. And it reformed the church. Now here's the point. Luther, early on in his life, thought he could bargain with God. Shimei thought he could bargain with David. Here's what I have to offer. Here's what I bring to the table. And Luther soon discovered, and you will soon discover, if this is your sense of your relationship with Christ, that you have nothing to offer. And until you come to the knowledge of the sheer love of God for you as a sinner, you will fall into a deeper despair. Now Luther, in a debate that he had in Heidelberg, said this about God's love. God's love does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. God's love does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows out and bestows good. For this reason, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Just think about that. 
Sinners are attractive because God loves them. You are attractive because God loves you. He doesn't love you because you're attractive. God didn't care that Shimei had a thousand men with him and that he was the first from Joseph to come down. Now, Mephibosheth knew this love. He knew the love of God. His father was David. David was a man, or his father was Jonathan. Jonathan was a man that knew God's love. And he was a minister of that love in David's life. And David was to Jonathan, and that love passed on to Mephibosheth. And as you look at this encounter between Mephibosheth and David, listen to what Mephibosheth says in verse 28. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. Now, that's each one of us before God. Men and women doomed to death before our lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. That's also true of us. Christ has set us at his table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? What further right do I have? What do I have to offer you? Nothing. And Mephibosheth isn't returning to David thinking, okay, what can I now get out of this? He doesn't care. David says, all right, I'll split, I'll split the land between you and Ziba. Mephibosheth says, take it all. I don't care about the land. I'm glad you're safe. I'm concerned for you. And my love for you isn't determined by what I can get from you. Don't care about the land. I rejoice that you have returned safely. His concern is for David and David alone. And we have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves whether we haven't turned to Christ because we think, well, we're going to get something out of it. So on the one hand, we can't be like Shimei who says, well, here's what I have to offer. But do we recognize the free grace and recognize, okay, we have nothing to offer, but then think, well, we get all this good stuff when we turn to Christ. Look at all the benefits. And we love him for what he can do for us. Notice that's not Mephibosheth. He simply loves David. And as we grow in our knowledge of the love of God in Christ, we will come to that place where we don't care about the benefits. We love him. The Apostle Paul knew this. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. This is verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Well, that's Mephibosheth. I'll, I'll lose everything as long as I can gain David. And notice even the demonstration of Mephibosheth's love for David when David was in exile. Didn't cut his toenails didn't cut his hair, didn't wash his clothes. In other words, he shared in the suffering of David. He entered into the exile of David, even though 
He wasn't with him. And this is what Paul says. I will suffer the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Another person from church history, Augustine, in his most well-known book, The Confessions, it's an autobiography, he begins by reflecting on human beings and their relationship with God. And he says at the beginning, these are pretty well-known lines. He says, our hearts, he says, you have made us for your glory. You have made us to praise you. That's why you've made us, to praise you. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. My heart is restless until I find my rest in you. That's what the Apostle Paul learned. And if you read on in Augustine's Confessions, he comes back to that at the end. And there he's speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's the Holy Spirit who brings us into that rest. Because the Holy Spirit turns our heart and is turning our heart to Christ. And part of the sanctifying work of the Spirit is to lead us to Christ daily in such a way that we soon learn to forsake and count all other things as loss. And we, we come to know what Paul knew. And yes, there are decisions that we make in our lives, and there are things that we do where we say, look, I'm going to renounce this. I'm putting too much hope or trust in that. I want to seek after Christ. We do that. But know this too. God's Spirit is doing that in your life and in your heart. And the Lord Jesus is jealous for your love. He is jealous for you. And if there's anything in your life that is leading you away from him, he will remove it. He will. God's Spirit will remove it. And when it happens, don't be discouraged by that. You know, initially you might think, man, this is really hard. There's a lot that's been taken away. But then we find, ah, yeah, God is drawing us closer to himself. I'm learning to love Christ. So that's Mephibosheth. And then we come to Barzillai. Now we met Barzillai at the end of chapter 17. You remember at the time, it looked like Absalom had won. Everything was in his favor. He'd won the hearts of the people. He had the best counselors with him. He had an army with him. Didn't look good for David. And at that moment, when we learned that David was tired and he was hungry, Barzillai came to him, provided him with all kinds of good-sounding food, supplies, beds, things that he needed. So we know Barzillai already. And when David, the kingdom was restored to David, Barzillai went to meet, meet him, went with him. Now we learn here, we didn't know this, we learn here he was 80 years old. He's an old man. And actually in the ancient world, 80 years old was even older than it is to us now. We might think, you know, he was 100 years old. He's an old man. And yet even in his old age, he recognized there is the Lord's anointed and he went and served him at 80 years old. He wasn't sitting back, wasn't thinking, well, you know, I've done my bit. Continued to serve the Lord as he was able. But now as David comes back into his kingdom, Barzillai is quite candid about this. Look, I'm 80 years old. I can't do the things I used to do anymore. And so he very graciously refuses David's offer. Come with me, I'll give you everything, it'll be great. 
Barzillai says, no, I've served, but now I'm old. I'm just going to go home and live out whatever time I have left. So here in Barzillai, though, we see, yes, on the one hand, so Shimei is trying to bargain with God. Here's what I can give. On the other hand, we see Mephibosheth isn't concerned with what I get from God. So we see that. But Barzillai shows us that we still gladly receive God's gifts, his mercies, his grace. And we, we, we do seek to serve him with what we have. We don't neglect his service. Barzillai shows us that. But Barzillai also has a longer view. He's not just thinking about what I can do. So let's pick it up in verse 34. So first of all, he recognizes his, his time of life. How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Now, some of you that are older, this might resonate with you. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Sometimes that's translated, can I discern what is good or evil? But I think that simply means, you know, my intellectual faculties are starting to slip a bit. Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? This happens when you get older. You know, your, your hearing starts to go. Things that sound quite pleasant to most people, you know, kind of grates against your ears. Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the King? But then he goes on at the end of verse 37 to say this. Here is your servant, Chimham. It's probably his son. Let him go over with my Lord, the King, and do for him whatever seems good to you. Barzillai has served well. He recognizes, okay, my time has come. But here's my son. He's raised up his son. He's ready to hand on the baton. Son, you continue the work that I've been doing. You continue to serve. You go with David. And so we hear here Barzillai, yes, he's serving as he's able, but then he's also stepping aside, handing it on to the next generation. And there's a word here for the younger generation. You know, look at Chimham. He goes with he goes with David. He enters into his service. There's a word here for you. Because there is a time coming, and those who are older in the congregation will tell you it's going to come sooner than you think. When you will have to say, like Barzillai, look, I, my intellectual faculties are slipping. I'm hard of hearing now. I'm not able to do the kinds of things I was once able to do. That time is coming. But that's not today. Not yet. You still have your faculties. You've got energy. You've got strength. You've got ambition. You've got time. Recognize the gift that is to you. And recognize that now is the time to use what God has given you. Now is the time to use that energy, that strength. You know, direct that ambition in the right, towards the right objects. And ask yourself today, am I like Chimham? Am I ready when the baton is handed to me? Am I ready? And this is a time in your life where you are still, you're being shaped, you're being formed. You're impressionable. Your way of thinking is being shaped. The habits in your life are being formed. Your character is being shaped and formed. And the question is, 
And you need to ask yourself today, what shape is it taking? What form? Are you being shaped and formed by God's Spirit according to the image of Christ? By the Word of God. And think about this. What shape will I give to the next generation? As I'm being shaped, how am I going to then shape the next generation? Even if you're a teenager, it's good to be thinking about that right now. How am I going to shape the next generation? And I know especially right now, you know, one of the issues, I'm not going to get into political controversy right now, but you may have heard there's some controversy surrounding the we charity and our prime minister. But notice that within that controversy, there is a concern for the young people in our nation. What are the young people going to do? And this is a time for you, the younger generation, in the time of this virus, where there's lots of uncertainty. And young people your age are wondering, what are we going to do? What does the future hold for us? Now, you, as believers, know that God holds the future. You have the Word of God. You have His promises. Think of the prayer that we prayed this morning, Psalm 46. People your age are afraid. But you know that God is our rock and our refuge. And so even now at this young age, are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Can you say with Paul that you count everything as loss for the all-surpassing knowledge of Christ? And this is something I ask myself and I think about. It's good for all of us, but especially the younger generation to be thinking about this. What will your Lord say to you on the last day? What will he say to you about this time in your life on the last day? And I long, I long to hear the words of my Lord on the last day say to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, even at your young age, consider what your Lord will say to you about this time in your life on the last day. And may it be that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a little. Now know this too, you're not alone in this. There is still the older generation. I kind of think maybe 40 years old is a bit of a tipping point there, so I'm over 40. So I will speak on behalf of the older generation. But we are with you. And we recognize our calling to listen to you, to guide you, to encourage you, to admonish you, to stand firm with you on God's word, to seek Christ with you. And together, the generations within the church, among God's people, worshiping our Lord Jesus. Together, bearing witness to his life, to his love together seeking after him, trusting and obeying his word. It is a beautiful picture that every Sunday we come to the Lord's table together, young and old. And we come empty-handed. We don't come to negotiate. We don't come to make a deal. We don't come to bargain.
And we come knowing that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we can say every Sunday, just as Mephibosheth said, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you have set your servant among those who eat at your table. And every Sunday we can say that. Lord Jesus, you have set your servant among those who eat at your table. And so we come to this table and we recognize that having sat at this table, this gives us a perspective on the rest of life. You know, what really counts, what really matters. And we come and we count everything else as loss. And we, we meet our Lord at this table. He's called us here. He's given us a place. And here we know that he is with us. And we know what Paul means when he says that we count all things lost, that we may gain Christ. And we gain Christ when we come and gather in this place, when we come to this table. So let's come now and having gained him, know that we have been set apart for his service. To use the gifts that he's given us, the life that he's given us, to declare his name, and like Barzillai, as long as we're able to faithfully serve him, and then also looking to raise up the next generation. So let's come to the table now. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.